0: You're listening to the sermon series on the letter to the Philippians at Sojourn Church Carlisle. In this letter, the Apostle Paul calls believers to live on the earth now as citizens of heaven. This means that Christians should find their identity not in this world, but in the world to come, centered on Jesus Christ. Good morning. Good morning. Peace be with you. Also with you, Uh, thank you guys for being here with us this morning. My name is James Fields. I serve here as the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. It is indeed a delight to be with you all this morning on this glorious day. Um, If you don't mind, would you mind standing with me as we read God's word? We're going to continue in our study in the book of Philippians this morning. We have the joy and delight of looking at very, very uh, popular passage of scripture, Philippians chapter three. We're going to look at the first. 11 verses together, all right? So we'll look at Philippians chapter three, verses one through 11, and it reads as follows. It says this, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dog, dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh, for they are the circumcision, The one for we are the circumcision, excuse me, the ones who worship by the spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks else, excuse me, if anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have the more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews regarding the law of Pharisee regarding zeal persecuting the church regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Verse seven, but everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you bow with a word of prayer with me? Father, we do thank you. As always, God, I ask that you would take my little and make much of it. Glorify yourself as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. One day, a granddaughter sat in her grandfather's den eating potato chips. He told her not to eat potato chips in the den. So she quickly went into the kitchen. A few minutes later, the grandpa walked through the den for something, and she, he saw her eating cookies in the den. He responded, Carissa, I thought I did. I said, don't eat in in the den. She said, no, Poppy, that's not what you said. You said, don't eat potato chips in the den. She then held up the cookie and said, this is not a potato chip. (laughs) What's the point of that story? Well, the point in that story is talking about legalism. You see, the list in legalism are always too short or they're too long. The list in legalism also don't deal with the attitude behind the action. You see, a person could do everything on a list, yet still have a wrong spirit. Our passage today speaks to the problem of legalism. You see, legalism is the temptation to derive your justification before God. It is a temptation to derive your justification before God, your acceptance by God, and your forgiveness from God by your own religious works. In other words, legalism is self-atonement. It is self-salvation It's a self-salvation project that only leads to pride and despair. It's based on the gospel of self-human achievement. And church, this morning, as we look at this passage, it's a good reminder for us that we can't earn our salvation. It's a good reminder for us that salvation is a gift that is to be received from God. See, salvation is not a gift that is given like, it's not an expected gift like the ones you get on your birthday. When you go to your birthday party, you expect to get some type of gift or some type of way of people celebrating you during that occasion. It's not an expected gift like that. It's not an expected gift like on Christmas, where you rush down to the tree and you see all the presents before you. It's not not like that. Salvation is not a gift that is earned. It's It's not like an award ceremony after an athletic event or after an athletic tournament. It's not going to the podium during the Olympics to await the medal that you've earned. That's not what salvation is salvation is a gift that is endorsed it is a gift, gift that has been endorsed and given from god almighty the creator of the ends of the earth and it's to be received from him through the person of christ jesus i love what drew willer says about this he says grace is not opposed to effort it's not a, it, it is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Look with me in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 3. Before Paul gets into this aspect of legalism, he gets into a very, very important subject. He says this, Philippians chapter 3 verse 1. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. This this theme of rejoicing is mentioned at least 10 times throughout this letter to the church of Philippi. And rejoice is a major theme in this particular chapter of chapter three. So it's no wonder that Paul, the great author and the great theologian starts off where the main theme is. He says, rejoice in the Lord. It's a good reminder for us that we can't, excuse me, it's a good reminder for us that we can't be reminded too often to rejoice in Jesus. He's reminding us for a reason, because we have a thousand reasons not to rejoice in Jesus. So Paul starts in the very beginning and saying, listen, rejoice in the Lord. One thing that gets my heart happy about this, even one sentence here, is that it's a good reminder that we can find joy in the Lord even when our circumstances are bad. Even when things aren't going my way, even when things don't look the way I want them or hope for them to look like, I still can have joy in the Lord and I still can draw rejoicing in the Lord through the spirit of Christ. Notice what he says in 1B. He says, rejoice in the Lord. He says, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Notice Paul's language here. Paul is saying just what we talked about last week. Remember last week we said, don't get bored about ordinary obedience. Here in in chapter, in in uh, verse one, part B, Paul is telling us, don't get bored with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't get bored. Don't get bored with ordinary obedience. Last week we talked about working out your faith with fear and trembling That God uses the ordinary things of life to draw draw us and to strengthen us as followers, as his children. But this week he does the same thing. He says, don't get bored with ordinary obedience last week. But this week he says, don't get bored with the gospel. Don't get bored with the good news of the gospel. So how should a church protect itself from legalism and fraud? How should we protect ourselves? Notice what he says. He says in verse verse 1, he says, To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and a safeguard for you. See, the church will be protected from legalism and any false gospel by studying the gospel regularly, by meditating on the gospel regularly, regularly by having a constant diet of the gospel, you will know and be able to rightly discern between the true gospel and a fake gospel, amen? Paul goes on in verse two. He gives us some marks of truly knowing Christ. And he, he, before he tells us how we can know Christ, he tells us about these persons here in verse two. He says, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, who is he talking about? When Paul is talking about watching out for dogs, he's not talking about the dog at my house, bear, bear, bear. We call him bear, bear. uh, That's locked up in his cage right now. and is waiting for us to come home and play with him uh, and throw some balls around and and have a good time. He's not talking about a pet. What he's talking about here in in this context is he's talking about dogs being scavengers. Dogs were often seen as being unclean animals. They roam around and they try to find anything or everything to eat. There were lone survivors. And Paul is saying to beware of false and unclean teachers. These men and women were Jewish Christians who wrongly believed that it was essential, if not necessary, to follow all of the Old Testament Jewish laws, especially to submit to the right of circumcision in order to be saved. Thus they were called Judaizers. It's a good reminder for us that we must be aware of any system of theology that says we must become something or we must become someone in order to earn a right standing with them or with God. Any theology that says you must acclimate or you must uh, assimilate into who we are in order to be accepted by God or to be accepted within our group is not preaching or living the true gospel. The problem, thank you, amen, You see, the problem here is that they looked at Christianity backwards. Each and every week, I always say this phrase, so you probably can say it for me. If you don't, you already know. Many of you already know where I'm heading, right? Identity precedes function. But for these Judaizers, it was just the opposite. It wasn't about your identity preceding your function. When we say that, we're saying who you are precedes what you do or who you are trying to do or the things that you do for God. Who you are matters more than the things you do for God. And the Judaizers uh, Judaizers decided to flip it around. And instead of saying identity precedes function, they said that your function precedes your identity. They taught that they they taught that what they did, the circumcision or cutting or mutilating the flesh, that that what they did made them believers rather than the free gift of grace given in and through Christ Jesus. It's a good reminder for us as a church that what believers do is a result of faith and it's never to be a prerequisite to faith, no one should add anything to Christ's offer of salvation by grace through faith. No one. Love what Drew Willer said again, he says, this grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, but effort is an action. In verse three, we see these three unique, distinct marks of a Christian. Paul then says, hey, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Watch out those who are evil workers. But here's the reason why. Verse three, for we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the spirit of God, who boast in Christ Jesus and who do not put confidence in the flesh. Paul right here gives us three unique marks, three distinct marks of a Christian. Number one. We worship by the spirit of God. True Christians possess the spirit of God. I love how Jesus said this in John 4:23, talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. He says, true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. Church family, you can rest and you can rejoice in the fact that the spirit of God dwells in you. If you are a born again believer, if you are a blood-bought Christian, you can rejoice in the fact That the Spirit of God is in you, enabling you to worship and to serve God to the praise of His His glory. Amen. Three distinct marks of a Christian one, they worship by the Spirit of God, number two, they boast in Christ Jesus. This is a good reminder for us that the Christian life is a Christ exalting life. We are to make much of Jesus. Despite our differences, Despite our misunderstandings, despite our socioeconomic status, let us be a church that is known for making much of Jesus. Number one, they worship by the Spirit of God. Number two, they boast in Christ Jesus. Number three, they don't put confidence in the flesh. I love that Paul put this here because this is this language that, that I know about. This is a struggle that, that I struggle with every single day of my life. You see, our human hearts are prone to trust in other things. Our human hearts are prone to trust in other things instead of Christ for our salvation. We, we, we are prone to trust into our nationality or our rituals or even our education. And guys, I don't know how how I can say this other than, but I'm so thankful that in Jesus, that in Jesus, that in Jesus, God doesn't require any other prerequisite other than him. You can stand safely, you can stand securely, you can stand confidently, confidently before God because of the work of another, namely Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verses 2 and 3. Do not put confidence in the flesh. What is this talking about? What he's saying here is this. To put confidence in the flesh means this. He's referring to a conviction or belief. He's referring to a conviction or belief that I can do on my own what's necessary for me to become what I'm supposed to be as a Christian. Let me repeat that. It's the conviction or the belief that I can do on my own what's necessary for me to become what I'm supposed to be as a Christian. I don't need community, I don't need the scriptures, I don't need the Bible, I don't need a pastor. I can do me on my all by myself. And Paul is calling this church away from that. He's calling them away from confidence in the flesh. Because here's the problem: we're putting confidence in the flesh. When you put confidence in the flesh, and when you put confidence in yourself about your relationship with God, you nullify his work in your life. You nullify it. You count it as net zero. God hasn't called us. To do anything beyond what what he has already required. It is our pride, it is our arrogance that keeps us from the simplicity and the beauty that the gospel provides. Doesn't mean that your works don't matter, doesn't mean that your actions don't matter. What it means is that your work cannot earn a right standing before God, the creator. That the only work that you can put before God that will put you in the right standing before him is the work that Jesus has come and done 2,000 years ago. And if your life and if your beliefs, if your conviction. If your attitude and your lifestyle does not match up to having his foundation on Jesus, then it's faulty and it will be nullified. I pray that for our church. I pray that for myself. It's not easy being a Christian. But usually things that are worth having or things that are worth obtaining usually are hard and difficult. I pray and I ask that as we continue to even go through this Philippian series that our hearts will grow and checking ourselves to see is our foundation really on Jesus not on a political agenda not on pastor fields team or pastor nick's team not on carlo avenues team or sojourn church Is your foundation on Jesus? Yesterday, I got a chance to have some alone time. My family and I went out for a vacation, um, a quick vacation, and we came back, which was great. But last night, uh, I got a chance to watch one of my favorite movies. And I'm going to probably pronounce it wrong, so somebody correct me if I pronounce it wrong. But San Andreas, is that right? How you say it? San Andreas, is that right? Maybe, OK, maybe you all you don't know that movie. OK. Uh, <laughs> anyway, there's a great movie with The Rock. Any movie with The Rock is great, right? That's not true, but I seem to like movies with The Rock. I don't know why, but may, maybe he's I don't know. Maybe my foundation would be on Jesus, and not on The Rock. I don't know. But in this movie, it's about him being a helicopter pilot. And the whole the whole country is being devastated by an earthquake and everything is shaking. I mean, everything. Buildings are collapsing. Towers are falling over. Like, it's total chaos throughout the movie. That's why I like it. I'm like, man, this is great. And I was, but, but one of the things I realized yesterday while watching the movie with this, this chaos going around, I mean, people would literally, this is not funny, so I'm not trying to be funny here, but people would literally go through doors, and you open the door, and like, the whole building will be missing. Like, it's just, that's, that things were just happening just rapidly. But one of the things the Lord spoke to me while I was watching a movie yesterday was this. He says, how you respond in chaos matters. And how you respond in chaos, when your world is upside down and when things are just going everywhere, there's no control maybe in your life. How we respond matters. And it, it will be revealing for us to see if our foundation is truly on Jesus, if if or if our foundation is truly on something else, don't despise the hardships of life. Don't, don't despise the sufferings of life. The sufferings of life are an invitation from Jesus to grow into intimacy with Him. He knows it's too hard for you. That's why He allowed you to experience it. But in the same breath, he's waiting for you to reach out to him as your foundation, to reach out to him as your savior, to reach out to him as your God and allow him to show up and show out. This is what it means not to put confidence in the flesh. It means that when when stuff hits the flan, when the earthquakes start happening in my life when things starts toppling over and the, the, wor- the world is literally opening up underneath me, and I feel like I'm falling out of control. Can I place my faith in Jesus and still find him to be true? And I'm telling you, I'm telling you brothers and sisters, the answer is yes. Beauty of the gospel is that it's, it's so shallow that little babies can go out into it and play in it and waddle in it on the shore. But the beauty of the, the the complexity and the grandness of the gospel is that it's deep enough that we'll never know the full beauty and the magnitude of what the gospel truly entails and what truly what it means. It's small enough for the babies. Believe in Jesus, trust in him. But it's deep enough when you lose a spouse or you're in the hospital with COVID or you're going through a divorce, or you're you're about to go through a divorce, your marriage is falling apart. It's deep enough for those waters too. And I ask you, brothers and sisters, this. I ask you this, and I ask, please, what are your chaotic situations revealing to you? What are they revealing to you? What are they showing you? Don't ignore it. Don't put a blind eye to it. What is it showing you? Ease your foundation on him. And if not, I encourage you to admit that, confess that to Jesus, ask him for forgiveness and ask him for strength to repent and turn away, to follow him and to see him provide for you despite your circumstances and despite your situation. This is what Paul is talking about here in verses four and five. He says, listen, if, I, if, if anyone could put confidence, if anyone could, be, um, could live the life that the Judaizers so admire, I could do it more than anyone. He gives us seven reasons for it. He says, listen, he says, I was, I was an eighth dayer, meaning that he himself was circumcised on the eighth day. On the eighth day, every Hebrew boy was to be circumcised on that day according to Judea law. Not only that, he was a descendant of Abraham. He was from the nation of Israel. He was not just from the nation of Israel. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was one of the most um, distinguished uh, tribes of the nation of Israel. The tribe of Benjamin comes from the second, the second son from Rachel. Joseph was the first who was sold off into slavery by his brothers. But Benjamin was the one who was loved by Jacob so much so that he didn't even want him to leave his side his side or even out of his sight because he loved them so much. The tribe of Benjamin is where the, ki- the first king of Israel came from, the king of Saul. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. When the nations split, when 10 kingdoms went to the north and two kingdoms went to the south, Judah and Benjamin were the two representatives of the southern kingdom. And, the tri- and during the exile, the tribes of Benjamin and, and Judah were the only two tribes to return to Israel after the exile. So when Paul says he's from the tribe of Benjamin, he's not just saying, hey, I'm just from a certain. He's like, I'm from the tribe. And the only tribe that's greater than his is the tribe of Judah because Jesus Christ himself is a descendant of, of, from, from that specific tribe. He says, I was a Hebrew of a Hebrew. He goes on to say, Regarding zeal, regarding, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, I was blameless. I love what Paul does here because Paul shows us a, a very, very important lesson. He teaches us this, this, this clear thing: that privilege is not to be denied or to be ignored. Let me say that again. Privilege is not to be denied or to be ignored. We live in a country of privilege. Every single person in here, we have privileges. Black, black man, black woman, white woman, white man, Asian family, whoever you may be, being in this country has its opportunities for privilege. Privilege is not to be denied or to be ignored but it's to be deployed in the name of Jesus for the sake of others. We are to use the privilege that God has given us, not try to hide away from it, ignore it, not try to deny it, but to use the privilege that he's given us and deploy it in the name of Jesus for the service and the benefit and the love of others. Love what Tim Keller says about this in his book, Generous Justice. He says, In Christ, our racial and cultural identities, while not insignificant, are no longer primary to our self-understanding. Our bond with others in Christ is stronger than our relationship to other members of our own racial and national groups. The gospel makes us like Abraham, who left his home culture but never arrived in another one. For, so, for example... Chinese Christians do not renounce their Chinese identity to become something else. Yet the gospel drives them critical distance from their own culture, enabling them to critique their own cultural gods. One way that you can know and you can see if you are truly having a foundation on Christ and not on something else is one, understanding that God hasn't called you to assimilation. He hasn't called you to be something in order to be accepted, number one. But number two, this is very important, you should be, if if whatever culture that you are a part of, you should be able to step back from that culture and be able to rightly critique that culture from the lens and from the viewpoint of the gospel. You shouldn't be so entwined with your culture that you're not able to step back and to discern what is godly and what is ungodly. What is biblical and what is unbiblical. If you are so intertwined with a culture that you can't step back and put the lens of the gospel up to it and see right from wrong, something is wrong. If you are so ingrained in your culture that everything is just great, everything is wonderful, you may be t- you may be allowing that culture to be a foundation for you rather than King Jesus and his kingdom. Can you critique your culture? Can you find fault? Can can you look at the places you dwell, the things that you surround yourself with and say, yeah, this is beautiful, this is good, but it's not godly. Can, Can you say that? Can you look at that? Can you see that? And I'm not saying that because I want you to critique your culture. I love being black, and I'm not going to apologize to anybody ever for being a black man or being a black pastor. That's how God created me, and I'm thankful for that. But I can be able to step back, and I can look at look at my culture with the lens of the gospel and see areas where we can improve and we can grow and we can be more Christ-centered because my culture is not my foundation. Jesus is my foundation. And I hope and pray that he is your foundation as well. Notice with me in verses seven through 11, as we come to a close, it says this, but everything that was gained to me, I consider to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on. Faith. Last week we talked about the three aspects of salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification means this, that you have been saved from the penalty of sin. That God cannot longer, because you are in Jesus, he cannot look at you and he won't look at you and say you must die uh, an eternal death because of your sins. Jesus has paid that penalty for you, so you have been saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is the the fact that you are being saved from the power of sin, that sin no longer has its power over you. It's losing its grip on you. Yes, you still sin, but you are learning how to sin less, less frequently, less often. Your desires for God and your desires for him are changing and growing as you pursue him. And then lastly, glorification that you'll be saved from the very presence of sin that in heaven there is no aspect, there's no not an iota of sin within the holy presence of our holy God. Amen? And we see that here in these verses. We see these aspects of justification, sanctification, and even glorification. Look with me in, in verse 9. He says, and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own. Being found in who? Being found in Jesus. I want to be justified in him. That the work that Jesus did on the cross was not just some work 2,000 years ago. The work that Jesus did on the cross was the work that he did for me that internally unites me with him, God, with with the work that he's done through God the Father. That his work has an immediate effect in my life today, right now. But not only that, look with me in verse 10. He says, my goal is to know him. Growing in the knowledge of Jesus, growing and understanding who he is. Love the old hymn that says, um, oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. This is this aspect of knowing him is that you, God wants you to know him in all aspects of your life. He wants you to know you in your singleness. He wants you to know when you're married. He wants you to know when you're married. He wants to know when you're a widow. He wants you to know every aspect when you're, when you're a poor college student trying to make, make, make ends meet, eating ramen noodles. He wants to know you in that. When you're a new parent learning how to, uh, to raise children for the first time. Or maybe you are a parent who is longing to become a parent and it's just not happened yet. In every aspect of life, our goal is to know him, know him. That's why I'm gonna go back to what I said in the very beginning, don't get bored with the gospel. Don't get bored with the gospel. The gospel doesn't change, but your circumstance, your reality, who you are changes. And as you change and as you develop, the gospel is still able to be applicable and powerful in you as you grow in him. So we see sanctification in verse nine. We see, uh, excuse me, justification in verse nine. We see sanctification in verse 10. And in verse 11, we see this aspect of glorification. He says this, assuming that I somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. And I love this because this reminds us That What Paul is not talking about here is that he's not talking about the second coming of Jesus. He's talking about experiencing Jesus' resurrection power in his life to joyously overcome every single challenge that he's experiencing. When when Paul wrote, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, he was not implying uncertainty or doubt. He was just unsure of the way that he would actually meet God. He didn't know if he was going to meet him through execution or through natural means or through natural causes of death. But one thing that Paul didn't doubt was that he would be raised. And he acknowledged that the attainment of it, of this can only happen within God's power and not that of his own. You see, when God redeems a person, he uses the same creative power that he used when he first spoke the world into the existence. He shines in our hearts to give us the knowledge of Christ later. And as as he does that, more glory will be revealed. I love what Habakkuk 2.14 says. It says this, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God's glory as the water covers the sea. Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you and praise you that God, you are working all things out for our good. We thank you, God, that you have us covered. God, grow us in this knowledge and understanding of what grace is, that grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. God, help us not to try to earn our salvation in any way apart from trusting in you and placing our faith in you. We do love you and we do praise you. As always, God, take my little, make much of it, glorify yourself. I pray anyone under the sound of my voice who needs to repent of their sins and turn to you. Maybe for the first time, I pray that that would happen even now, Father, that they would place their faith in King Jesus, the resurrected King. I thank you, God, that you call us to know you because you are the resurrected Savior. You are alive right now. You are looking at us even from heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father. We don't have a dead God. We have a resurrected, alive God who's alive right now, listening to our prayers, interceding for us even now. We thank you for that, God. This knowledge of you is not just something that we hope for, something that we get to experience every day with our resurrected King. Father, if we have been placing our foundation on the wrong foundation, would you forgive us, God? God, we confess that, God, we have not placed you as our primary foundation. God, we've put our confidence in our flesh. We've done things our way or the best way that we knew how apart from you and apart from your word. God, would you tether us to your word? Would you grow a greater appetite for us as a church for your word? And would you produce the fruit that you desire in our life as our appetite grows for you? In Jesus' name, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr. Lead Pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.